Hey guys, this is Phil here. We're changing up the format of our show. Uh, we're going to try to make it a little more conversational. And we've included a previous guest in this episode. And we're having a conversation about behavior modification. It's a huge buzzword in the world today. And we thought we'd talk about it with somebody who knows about it. And so we hope you enjoy it. At the end of the episode, I mentioned our email address, and I actually got it wrong. It is srslyreallypodcast at gmail.com, all one word. Go ahead and hit us up there if you have any questions, comments about the show, or if you have any show ideas. Also, in this episode, we do talk about the freedom of choice and whether it exists or not. So if you're sensitive to something like that, please be aware and enjoy the show. Thank you. Here with me, as usual, I have the beautiful Audrey Kennedy. Audrey. Hey, everybody. You want to go ahead and tell us what your credentials are? I am a board certified behavior analyst. With a? Oh, I have a master's of science in educational psychology and a graduate certificate in applied behavior analysis. All right. So if you guys didn't know about that, uh, who listened to our show before, now you do know. And also um, joining us again is Dr. Theodore Hoke, Ted. Hi. <laughs> and can you just go ahead and reiterate your credentials for us again? Yeah, I'm Ted Hoke. I am a doctoral level board certified behavior analyst, licensed behavior analyst, licensed professional counselor, licensed psychologist, and I live and work here in the lovely Commonwealth of Virginia. Beautiful. Um, and today, we are going to discuss behavior modification, and I have two individuals who are very qualified to talk about the subject. Um, we've just heard a lot in media and social media and all over the interwebs and in the news and on podcasts about behavior modification and what it is. And I feel like there's just a lot of misinformation or misgivings about the associations with behavior modification, I kind of wanted to tackle it and get ahead of the subject and kind of put some truth to it and put some real answers to it. So today, that's what we're going to be tackling. And we're just going to go ahead and start out. Um, Ted, go ahead and give us an introduction of what behavior modification is and where it came from. Okay. Well, that term, behavior modification, I think it was coined by Skinner in Science and Human Behavior back in 1953. And their behavior modification was described as the use of positive reinforcement to change behavior. So nothing sinister, all kind of nice really, using positive reinforcement to change behavior. Um, and, and in the 50s and 60s, you know, still post-war America, um, a busy time, a pretty prosperous time, except for that reception around 50, uh, re reception, recession around 58. Generally a pretty prosperous time um, with a lot of people going to schools. There was a, a, a fad period during that time, a behavior modification kind of fad. Um, you know, Skinner had his teaching machines, which were wonderful. We still have them. They're called computers now. And with good instructional design, Computer-delivered instruction is wonderful. 
Um, but he never he never copyrighted or um, trademarked any of that. He never patented it. And so there were a lot of cheap imitations. Well, you know, in, in, in the media with, with, you know, the publication of Psychology Today and, you know, pop psychology in general in the 60s and early 70s, the term behavior modification really took off. Um, and the notion that if you want more of something, you reinforce, and you want less of something, you punish, and that's kind of it. In fact, when I was an undergrad at University of Illinois, late 70s, early 80s, that's what I learned there. You want more, you reinforce, you want less, you punish. And that was behavior modification. I can remember as a kid in elementary school, teachers saying, we're using behavior modification to get more parents to join the PTA. And the way it works is if your parents join, if you bring back the slip that they've joined, you get some Smarties. Remember what Smarties are? Yeah. Those little candies that were rolled up in the plastic, yeah. um, which in the late 60s we pretended were drugs. But, um, <laughs> you know, it, it, it seems pretty simplistic, right? Yeah. Aside from that, there are some in the behavior analytic community who have considered the difference between applied behavior analysis and behavior modification to me to be whether or not there is a functional analysis or functional assessment conducted before implementing the behavior change procedures. Mm -hmm. You know, if those procedures are derived from a formal functional analysis or some formalized functional assessment, then you got applied behavior analysis. Yeah. Uh, but if not, you know, then it's, it's behavior modification. So it's almost a pejorative term in the behavior analysis literature. Yeah. And this is something I wanted to tackle too, but since you brought it up now, we're going to go ahead and tackle it now. Um, there's a lot of people who bring up behavior mod and behavior analysis almost in the same breath. And it's, it's really not the same. There's a lot of people who are saying things about behavior analysis in behavior mod, like they don't consider the emotions or the thoughts of the person being treated, which I'm led to believe that in behavior modification, that's somewhat true, but in behavior analysis, it's definitely not true. Audrey, what, what are the differences there? In behavior mod and behavior analysis? Yeah. So I, I think it's just a common misconception that in behavior modification, or if you are somebody that adopts the philosophical approach of behaviorism in general, that uh, that that person maybe doesn't even deny the idea that thoughts, feelings, emotions exist, but that they don't include that in part of their analysis or consideration, mm -hmm. that it's all about, we can't observe it, therefore it doesn't exist. That's kind of the, the, the common belief of the behaviorist view. If you're a behaviorist, then you must believe that thoughts and feelings don't exist, or I can't consider them in part of my treatment or analysis because I can't observe them. And that is false. As a radical behaviorist, you very much don't deny the existence of those things. We uh, discuss them in terms of private events. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's kind of a a common misconception, there's some people that would say that ABA is bad or negative or harmful because it's behaviorism or it's behavior modification and it doesn't care about or take into consideration how somebody's feeling or what these internal events are. And there's even some 
blogs, thoughts, comments out there floating around on the internet and social media that say that sometimes um, some people believe dog training is more humanistic or individual centered in their approach in that they take into consideration the history of the dog and have they experienced any trauma or kind of where some of their motivations for their behavior are coming from. Whereas a behaviorist working with people, maybe even an applied behavior analysis in applied sense, doesn't, that we kind of deny the existence of those things and we don't incorporate that into intervention planning and analysis. Yeah, there's the the cartoonish uh, discussion about the cold-blooded robotic behavior analyst treating people, which is demonstrably false in a lot of cases. Ted, what do you have to say on the subject? Well, I think anything done badly, you know, you call it one thing, but you do it, you do an incomplete job or you do it badly or you leave parts out or whatever, you know, it certainly creates the appearance that the whole thing is awful. Um, And, and I think those who claim that behavior analysis doesn't take into account or behavior modification thoughts or feelings, emotions, any of that really doesn't have a thorough understanding of what behavior modification or behavior analysis are. You know, we have our operant behavior and we have our respondent behavior and our emotional behavior is respondent behavior. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, we know how to teach people how to like things or not like things. Not that we do that to control other people. The fact there's controls there, whether you know it or not, but you know, advertisers have known this forever, right? They don't, they don't put people like me in front of the car. They put really hot people in front of the car so that, you know, the car and hotness go together and, you know, the appearance of the hot person makes you feel a certain way and you pair that with the car, eventually the car makes you feel that way. Yeah. You know, advertisers understand it. Good behavior analysts understand it. We understand that we have our emotions, which are respondent behavior. And then there's what we say and think about the emotions, which is verbal behavior. And there's what we do in response to those emotions, which is operant behavior, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's, it's all behavior and a good number of people don't understand that. Now, many of those people aren't trained in behavior analysis. So of course they don't just like you and I probably have a really good informal knowledge of open heart surgery. The way I understand it is you, you put the patient under with, you know, some anesthetizing drug, and then you cut open the chest and you crack open the ribs and you do an operation on the heart and then you sew the person back up and then the person wakes up. Well, you know, if we pretend in discussing things that way that we're having an intelligent, well-informed discussion about it, we're really not, but we can pretend that, right? Yeah. I think that's, that's you know, if, if you're not really well-trained and well-versed in behavior analysis or behavior modification, you're going to have a discussion based on incomplete understanding. Mm-hmm. Yes. But then there are those people who practice behavior analysis or behavior modification who may have had very little training. You know, they may have come from a counseling background or a clinical psych background or social work or teaching or something with little formal training and little formal, you know, apprenticeship in that. But they're taught that what they're doing is that. And yeah. so I see under that circumstance, people understanding or thinking, you know, coming to the understanding that we ignore thoughts and feelings and emotions and all of that. And then you get young behavior analysts who's, who've gone through behavior analysis training programs, but are really new to the science still. 
mm-hmm. and really don't have a thorough, deep understanding. And for all of those, I say, go back and read you know, Science and Human Behavior, read all of the original Skinner stuff, go back to the original sources, read you know, Michael Dewar's work on, on, on conditioning respondent uh, reactions, respondent um, contingencies to equivalence relations and so on. It's all there in the literature. It's just people aren't always aware that it's there. Yes. Well, and that takes so much effort from people. And so I think it, in today's world, it's so much easier to spread that misinformation, also via social media, than it is to go back and read some of those works um, and and kind of disseminate that um, whether it even be on social media or or in person and, and through networking and through um, the field, that's a, a heavier lift. Yeah. Um, and so it doesn't it doesn't happen as much, and no. it's a little less sexy. Oh, it's a, oh, it's a lot less sexy. Although it's really sexy when you actually understand the science and understand how stuff works. <laughs> yeah. But um, I'll, I'll tell you, it, it, it's also the case I think that many of these. Um, arguments or condemnations come from people who have an emotional investment and we all have emotional investments and stuff. Yeah. But you know, if, if people are told if what they're taught is that behavior analysts do things that are cruel, we make kids cry. We, 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 you know, try to change people with autism and make them not have autism anymore and make them be just like everyone else and remove their personalities. If, if you've been told a bunch of things, or worse, if you've experienced bad stuff that's called behavior analysis, you know, of course, people are going to be pretty impassioned in their arguments against stuff, and they're mm-hmm. going to deal with it. And frankly, none of us wants to hurt anyone. None of us. I'm not into, you know, making people with autism be just like everyone else. Everyone needs to have their own personality, mm-hmm. their own likes and dislikes, their own thing, you know. I, I, my job is just to help people live the best life they can live. And they're the ones in charge of their lives, not me. Mm-hmm. All right. So more behavior mod. Behavior modification is pretty much everywhere. It's uh, advertising, like Ted mentioned. You know, you, you see Matthew McConaughey in a Lincoln, and you think that's going to be you driving a Lincoln. I don't know, though. He's one of those smelly celebrities I've read. <laughs> I'll, I'll take a Lincoln, just not his Lincoln. <laughs> just not his. Yeah. And I mean, we can really expect to see behavior modification anywhere. I was telling Audrey, a good example is like when you leave your closet door open and your dog chews on your shoe, your behavior is then modified to close the closet door when you leave your dog yep. out. Yep. Behavior modification is just everything we do. And this begs the question, like, where does it exist? Where do we experience this behavior modification? You know, it's everywhere. Think about, I don't know if, if either of you are old enough to remember when the no shirt, no shoes, no service sign. Oh, yeah. First went mm-hmm. yeah. Well, there was a really sharp decline in people going into the stores without shirts and shoes. Because if they went in, they really didn't get served. Yeah. And so yeah. going with shirt and shoes, get served. Going without, don't get served. Well, there you go. But no one called that a cruel, awful, inhumane thing. Yeah. The red light cameras, like them or dislike them, the fact is, if you go through the red light and there's that flash, that's the immediate consequence, right? Yeah. Not the ticket that comes in the mail later, that immediate flash, you think, ah, oh, damn it, they got me. You know? <laughs> so at that particular intersection, you tend to be more careful. Maybe not all of them, 
But yeah. there's some behavior modification for you too. It's kind of ubiquitous. Anytime the environment exerts any kind of control on our behavior, and that's 24-7, we got behavior modification happening. Audrey, yes. what say you? Our entire our entire existence, our entire being, from the time you wake up in the morning until you go to bed at night, and even while you're sleeping, there is it, you're being exposed to stimuli and contingencies and activity in the environment that's gonna affect your behavior and that's behavior modification now whether those things are naturally occurring like you walk outside and you get rained on and you think oh i gotta get my umbrella so i don't get rained on the rest of the day or whether there's somebody else in the environment manipulating things to modify your behavior, like your boss gives you a pink slip because you got to work late for the third time in a row. All of those things are behavior modifications. So to say that there are areas in which it doesn't exist would be inaccurate. Well, and what it is, is this big interaction between us and our environments, right? Mm -hmm. And we change and our behavior changes in response to the environment, but because we change in our environment er, er, and our, our behavior has changed, the environment changes. And, you know, that's kind of called living, right? That's, that's when, when that sort of reciprocal relationship stops, that's kind of when we're dead because, you know, what happens then is we stop behaving, but we do decompose. But, you know, you don't have to be alive to do that. You know, it's, <laughs> it's not a bad thing. It's really not a bad thing. No. You know, I'm really curious when you brought up the no sh- shoes, no shirt, no service, like a uh, sign that was so common. There is signs on the front doors to the Boise airport that um, have a picture of a, a gun on it with a X through it. And it's like, oh, leave your little friend at home, hotshot. You'll get this fine or a couple different um, sayings. So like a, a gun with a smile on it saying that? Yeah. Well, the gun does look sad. Bubble? Yeah, the gun does look sad. And, it, and so I mentioned this to my neighbor who is a pilot and he said, you know, Boise is the only airport with that on it because they have the highest rate of confiscated firearms, people coming to the airport with firearms. And so I'd, I'd be really curious to find out how effective that little sign on the, yeah, that campaign uh, on the front doors to the airport when you walk in, how effective that really is for people. What if if that sign is there because the TSA agents at the Boise airport are so much better at their jobs than everyone else that they actually find the guns and they're just not finding <laughs> and that's why there are more guns found per capita. And so they want those guys to lighten up a little bit, you know, <laughs> maybe, maybe. So <laughs> social media uses behavior modification, probably to a notorious extent. There's a lot of influencers there. There's, social modeling theory, there's uh, standard behavior modification, there's, uh, there's all kinds of stuff going on. First of all, what's, what's social modeling? There was a, a guy named Bandura mm-hmm. and he did an experiment and it's pretty famous. And if you guys want to check it out, it's on YouTube. Just look up the Bandura experiments. Bobo. <laughs> Bobo the clown. And there's what is it a lady beating up the clown first or a guy 
Yeah. So there's the, I believe she was a research assistant. Yeah. If I'm remembering correctly. And she comes in and she, you know, punches the clown and hits the clown around a little bit. And then she kind of, um, clown phobic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's one of those blow up clowns with like the yeah. sandbag yeah. on the bottom. Yeah. And then eventually you see the child who's being videoed also start to do the same things that the lady did and, um, was kind of the, I guess, seminal event that kind of founded this idea of social learning theory. Yeah. So that's social learning theory in a nutshell. And then the kid comes in and he automatically knows, you know, what to do with his clown and he gives it the business. He's he's one tough customer with the clown. (laughs) (laughs) He is. And how does that affect us? I mean, where, where does that put us as human beings? I mean, is monkey see monkey do literally monkey see monkey do. Yeah. You know, because, because that theory was developed when sometime in the sixties, I think Dr. Bender published that. But the fact is for millennia, you know, there, there have been, you know, apes or monkeys that, that teach other monkeys through observational learning how to rinse off potatoes, you know, in the, at, at the water side, at the, in the ocean or whatever, before they eat them. You know, and, and people have been watching other people and learning from, you know, you, you open up any, any old religious book, whether a, a, a Quran or a, a, a Bible or, or whatever, um, and you're going to read admonitions to be careful what you do because other people are watching and they might do it. You know, the old imitatable act mm-hmm. that itself is nothing new and that is perfectly natural act actually. And, you know, think about it in terms of birds, right? Birds. You ever see a huge, huge, huge flock of bird? Like, I don't know how many, probably hundreds. And they're like this big ball of birds that's flying around together. And then they all change direction at the same time. And then they go over there at the same time. And that's really important from an evolutionary standpoint. Because as long as you stay together in a huge mass, most of you aren't going to get picked off by the hawk, you know? But if you're out there freestyling, you're not likely to live to survive. So those organisms that are really good at that observational learning and, and, and doing what the, what the guy next is doing, they've, they've, you know, lived to, to reproduce. And it's, it's just part of nature, I think. Yeah, it's it's like observational theory. A lot of superstitions have developed from here. Don't go to this place because it's bad or it's ugly. And what ends up happening is there's a superstition built around that area because people died there. And like ravens, ravens are ravens and crows are kind of ominous creatures. And when you see one, and you get this kind of like you get these stories about how evil the birds are and things like that. And they're associated with death and decay. I mean, they're carry-on birds and they carry disease occasionally and what they eat can be diseased. So yeah, we get this association with these things through social behavior and social modeling. Mm-hmm. How does social media use social behavior and social modeling? Audrey, what do you have to say? I. That's a pretty big box to unpack. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's really interesting because I've been I've been thinking about this the past few weeks about kind of what kind of social modeling takes place within the realm of social media and how does that lead to modification of our behavior and I think it has to do with 
the reinforcement that we contact. So we, what I generally see happen, um, and I'm not on social media quite as much as I used to be. Just for our listeners, reinforcement is typically something that's added to the environment in order to either lessen or increase behavior. No. Well, no, it's always reinforcement means to strengthen. Okay. Yeah. So positive reinforcement, behavior happens, something is added to that person's world or increased in that person's world. And what you observe is an increase in that behavior over time. Maybe not okay. right then, but over time. Negative reinforcement, behavior happens, something is removed or lessened in that person's world. You see more of that behavior under those circumstances. So like the sun is in my eyes. I put my hand between my my eyes and the sun, closer to my head because the sun's far away. Mm-hmm. And so the, the sun's not in my eyes anymore, right? Yes. So in that circumstance, I'm more likely to do that. Or I itch, I scratch. You know, when I when I scratch where I itch, I don't feel that itch anymore. So I'm more likely to do that under that circumstance. Mm-hmm. But either way, yeah. with reinforcement, you get more behavior. To reinforce means to strengthen. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so I think we we see other people's behavior on social media. Somebody posts something, somebody shares something and what follows are comments and likes or shares or things of that nature. We see that and then think, well, I could try that and get some likes and shares. And that, that looks like something positive to me. So we then try it ourselves. We model that behavior and then we come into contact with reinforcement in the form of likes and shares and comments for ourselves, which increases the probability in which we're going to do that later. And, and But then you have social media who has these algorithms, right? So, oh, you liked and shared this. Well, I'm going to present more of this to you. And it becomes this uh, cycle of liking and sharing things that from people that you're exposed to, you kind of see them do it. So you model it and you do it yourself. And then when you do it yourself, it strengthens those algorithms, which then kind of puts you into contact with more of the people that are going to provide you with that reinforcement. Mm -hmm. And it's often the same kind of content or information. So yeah, and it's, it's not just limited to the algorithm doesn't stay within just that social media app or website. If I look at something on Amazon, later that day when I go to Facebook, I'm going to see ads for that that yeah. weren't there before and related project products and all sorts of stuff. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah, that happens. But think about this too. We go to social media because clearly something's reinforcing that behavior. Otherwise, we do it a couple times and not go back. Yeah. Um, we tend to hit that like button when it's stuff that we like because it's called a like button. Mm-hmm. We say we like stuff when that stuff is a reinforcer. So positive reinforcer, we like it because, you know, it's a positive reinforcer. It doesn't have to be liked, but we generally tend to like those. We like our negative reinforcers too because they make the bad stuff stop or they lessen the bad stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Being agreed with or being able to agree with something or, or and, and so being part of something, part of some really cool group, that in itself is, I think, automatically reinforcing. Mm-hmm. People get into a lot of that in Facebook and they hit that like button and then they share it, right? And why do you share it? Because when you share it, you're creating the situation where later on when you check, your checking is reinforced by seeing likes for what you shared. Mm-hmm. And what happens when instead of likes, people see criticism or people see arguments against what they've said? 
people get really upset about that stuff. Yeah. And that's kind of that's kind of extinction, right? Exactly. You know, you're only supposed to do likes. You're not doing likes. You're doing extinction. I'm going to give you an extinction burst. Yeah. <laughs> and we see that playing out all over the place. People flaming out on, on, on social media, you know, especially when it comes to politics lately. Mm-hmm. And, and extinction is for those that maybe aren't as familiar with the terminology is, is neither reinforcement nor punishment, but extinction is just simply the absence of whatever consequence was there. So typically you were coming into contact with uh, whatever was reinforcing to you or what some people would call a reward. And once that's removed, once that's not happening anymore, we tend to escalate or have some type of variability in our behavior. So that's famous kind of Coke machine analogy where you go to the Coke machine, you put your money in, you push the button and your Coke comes out. The Coke is your reinforcement. But one day you go to the Coke machine and you put your money and you push the button and it doesn't come out, your reinforcement is withheld. So there hasn't been really anything added or removed from the environment, but it's just withheld. And when it's withheld, people tend to maybe um, beat the machine up. Beat, beat the machine yeah, we have emotional behavior there. Right, right. There's kind of this emotional side effect. Yeah. yeah. Give me that bag of pretzels, you stupid snack machine. I think we've all that, that. That's exactly what I call it. <laughs> so a lot of social media also, we've, we've discussed this idea of homophily before, Audrey and I. And for those of you listening for the first time, homophily is, is just simply uh, similar people in your social group or your social network. Birds of a feather flock mm. together kind of idea. Homophily. Yes. H-O-M like saying, P-H-I-L like Philadelphia, brotherhood. Yes. I like it's- it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> homophily. And basically this homophily, this homogenous environment is created in in these social media apps and it's it's all filtered for you and all your friend suggestions um besides you know contacts in your phone that facebook decides to read and all that stuff the friend suggestions are based on you know who who you're you know talking to what you're liking what you're disliking it's the same on twitter it's the same on you know instagram it's the same all these places all these friend suggestions come up so you end up with this huge social network of you know homophilic examples of yourself or this this you know super homogenized filtered out crowd of people just all sharing the same anger the same love the same ideas just tossing them back and forth like a tennis ball and then you bring somebody else into the tennis court who plays a little bit differently. Maybe he plays a little bit more aggressively. Maybe he doesn't really like tennis balls. Maybe he wants to use different things. You end up with disagreement in the group and that homophily is broken. So the reinforcement is gone. How does this, how does this, how strong is social reinforcement in this aspect, Ted? Well, I think social reinforcement is, again, for most of us, kind of ubiquitous, both social positive and social negative. It's everywhere. And that's, you know, kind of what keeps us going. You know, why do I go to work on Monday when payday isn't until two weeks later? Clearly, it's not because I get paid when I go to work. That's not the immediate consequence. What happens when I'm at work? Well, I get to sit in my car, which has a really cool satellite radio, and I get to access all of those stimuli on the satellite radio while I'm driving to work. 
Mm-hmm. And then I get to see people who I like and talk to people who I like to talk to and access a lot of social reinforcement there while I'm at work. And what also happens when I don't show up and I'm supposed to be there is I access other social stimulation that isn't nearly as positively reinforcing. Mm-hmm. But how, 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 how strong is social reinforcement and social media? You know, that's why people keep going back. You live for the applause, as Lady Gaga said. Yeah. You know, we, we, we live for, on social media, the likes or the agreement yeah. or, or the discussion. So, you know, what, what trolls do, internet trolls, what they do is they live for, they, they, yeah, to create, you know, the huge reinforcer for them is a huge reaction they've con- uh, created from the other person, mm-hmm. you know? So that's kind of what keeps it going. Social media truly is social. Yes. You know, because it runs by social reinforcement. So I kind of, I kind of also wanted to get ahead of this idea that that social media is the enemy, and this this alarmism that's occurring over behavior modification. Like all of a sudden, you know, society is aware of what behavior modification is, and it's you know largely due to this whole you know uh, this Cambridge Analytica scandal with social media and Facebook and, and uh, the American election and Brexit, and they've influenced all these things. And, you know, it's all labeled as behavior mod, which it is, but behavior mods, behavior mods going on everywhere. Why is this, why are people being alarmist about this specific behavior modification? I mean, if you look back in our history, there's a guy named Edward Bernays. Uh, He was the nephew of, the late great uh, psychologist Sigmund Freud. And, you know, he used behavior modification in his advertisements. He started a war over bananas in South America over property. And that was to bring, you know, the marketing for bananas to America, you know, whatever it is, we're experiencing this every day. So why is this alarmism occurring over social media using behavior modification or Cambridge Analytica using behavior modification? Audrey, go ahead. Audrey? Um, I I think that it is because, and one of the big arguments that I hear sometimes against behavior modification or behavior analysis or or whatever you want to use to describe the phenomenon of behavior change is, well, you're manipulating people or you're manipulating. And, And I think that's one of the kind of trigger or pain points, especially with the Cambridge Analytica and the social media phenomenon is that people felt um, that their behavior was manipulated. So when we talk about operant behavior, it's, it's, we kind of have a choice, so to speak, in that we can engage in one behavior, or we can get, engage in another. It's not kind of this uh, automatic behavior that as, as we may describe respondent behavior. And so when people feel like that choice to behave was taken away, even though it may still actually be there, mm-hmm. I think that's what's the trigger point for things like Cambridge Analytica and behavior modification and social media in that that choice is ultimately still there, but their access to the information was maybe manipulated or withheld in certain areas. So they felt like their their choice was degraded in one way or another. They couldn't make an informed choice with regards to how they wanted to behave. 
And here's my beef with that. Like there's a lot of lies out there, just straight outright lies um, with these companies. You know, there, there's false advertisements. There's, you know, I, I guess the big, the big buzzword right now is, is fake media or fake news. But, you know, it exists. It, it exists. And whether it's modifying our behavior or not, I mean, it is modifying our behavior. But, you know, the onus is kind of on us to know what's, what's real and what's not. So for people to kind of say, oh, you know, I mean, I was lied to. Uh, people kind of fight back against that. And that's kind of a new phenomenon that's kind of being researched right now is, is like people fighting back. Like, yeah, I was lied to, but do I care? And well, people yeah. are holding on to that, yeah? Yeah, and it's not just the lied to. It's not just the lied to. Generally speaking, whenever it becomes apparent to us that our behavior is somehow being controlled by something someone else is doing, yeah. we don't like it. You know, that's really repugnant to a lot of people. But what we generally don't realize is that our behavior is controlled all the time anyway. Yeah. It's not coming out of nowhere. You know, it's related to the stuff going on around us and inside of us. And the stuff going on around us often includes other people's behavior and what they've done and what they've put in place. Yeah. And, you know, but still, you and I, you know, when we're talking to someone like a car salesman, you know, my tactic for buying a car is I tell them what I want and what I want to pay and ask them if they have that. And if they don't, I walk out the door because I'm not going to waste my time or theirs. Because otherwise what will happen is what I learned the hard way after, you know, I've been buying cars for 30 years now, for more than 30 years, is that what happens is you sit there and it's so apparent that this person is working on you to get you to say and do a particular thing, right? Yeah. And we don't like it. And yet we walked into the dealership. We chose to be there and we stay there through the sales pitch, you know, but we don't like it. You know, and, and so just this notion that, that our behavior is being controlled for many is, is, is really repugnant. But the fact is our behavior is always controlled. Our choices are controlled. You go to the supermarket, you know, you feel free, like you can buy whatever you want in there provided you have the money, right? Mm -hmm. Or credit limit. But the fact is your choices are limited by what's available on the shelves. Think of all the things you can't buy because they're not there. Mm -hmm. You know, our, our choices are controlled by things. So, you know, nothing, nothing is uncontrolled. Nothing's, you know, truly free in the sense of being, you know, completely, you know, just not controlled by anything. When our behavior is under control of positive reinforcement, we have that feel of freedom. Yeah, exactly. But, but that's what it is. It's a feeling and it's not, a, it's a good feeling and we want it to happen for a lot of people, for everyone. And I think the, the, that control or that manipulation is more repugnant to us when we feel like we're coerced when we're, yes. and I think that's kind of the feeling you get when you're at the, when you're buying a car, right? You kind of, you're somewhat coerced. You're only there because you want the car and you kind of have to sit through and deal with the sales pitch because you want the car. So they're kind of withholding something from you until you, until you engage in the behavior they want, which is yeah. sitting through their their pitch and then well, you can can get yeah. your car then you can get out of having to deal with their pitch or worse if you've ever gone to a a, a, a um, timeshare presentation oh gosh because you're promised fifty dollars if you just go to the presentation <laughs> yeah it's i'd pay fifty dollars to get out of that because yeah. the 
the, 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 the control, the coercion, it's so transparent, it's so repugnant. And, and you find yourself sitting there calculating, okay, how long have I been here? How much per minute is this? Yeah. You know, when, does, when do I hit minimum wage? Yeah. So. <laughs> how much is my time worth? I think the thing that's becoming more apparent these days is how, how m- much more personal things are, how much more we protect the things that are personal to us. Like if you, like, like I use the, the chew sh- the shoe chewing example um, earlier, like you can have a $300 pair of, of shoes in your closet that your dog chews up. But as soon as he chews up, you know, your favorite pair of shoes, whether it was $30 or $300, that's the one you're going to care about. And that's kind of what's becoming more and more apparent with this, this social media thing and the political divide is, is people are, are making these things more personal. And I think that's partially what's, what's boosting this, this uh, hate towards behavior modification and this anger towards behavior modification is that it's becoming personal. It's attacking political beliefs. It's attacking personal beliefs. It's attacking, you know, you as a, as a human being, it's attacking race, gender, all these things that are, that we make personal to us. And um, I, I think that's kind of where this behavior modification thing is going. And I think that's what, there's a lot of research going on about it right now too. Well, and again, we live for the applause on social media. We want those likes or those hearts or those shares, and we want people to agree to us. That's why we keep going because that stuff happens. Yeah. And when we don't get that, boy, do we get angry. Yeah. Or, or if, if someone disagrees with us. So, That's true. Yep. That is true. I also kind of wanted to get into this discussion about why not using social media is good or bad. You know, I've taken pretty much a two-year hiatus from Facebook. I, I still use Instagram. Uh, I don't get super personal with it anymore, and I don't get into these political debates that I used to get into on Facebook. I don't get into you know discussions very much anymore on these apps. And I think it's positively influenced my life not to be in those discussions and not to have that dopamine hit. I mean, I still get it, you know, when I look at Instagram and somebody likes, you know, a picture of a forest that I shared, but I, I think that, I think that I've enjoyed life a little bit more without the negativity that goes on in these, these, these groups and these, these chats. Audrey. Do you think it feels more authentic? What do you mean? If previously you were kind of engaging in a, in a lot of behavior on social media in Facebook and you maybe protect the thoughts or ideas that you share and you aren't necessarily um, sharing them with all of the world, do you feel that that has enhanced some of the experiences you've had over the past couple of years and made the ones that are valuable to you that you maybe do or don't share any more authentic than they would have been previously. Does that make sense? I think what it is for me uh, personally is that it was worth it to give up the positive reinforcement that exists in social media where people like and agree with what I say to lose the negative stuff that's out there, the punishing, the the negative reinforcement, you know, the the bad stuff that comes in. It was worth it to trade that and just give it up completely you know, I mean, I, I'll get on there to look somebody up and find like a, an email address, or if I need to hit somebody up and I don't have their phone number, I'll hit them up on Facebook and that's about it. And obviously, you know, I, I run the Facebook for, 
for the podcast. And that's, you know, that's, it. I don't get super personal. I don't get super contactive, but for me, I think it's increased the value of what I do share in my life with people. Like uh, when I share things with you or when I share things with friends, when I talk to my friends, I think mm-hmm. it's increased the value of, of what I do share with my friends because that face-to-face contact is, and you know, there's a lot of research about that too. Uh, the effect of face-to-face contact versus online contact mm-hmm. and online social groups. Um, yeah. I just kind of wonder if you're constantly, it, I don't know if this is true or not, or if people feel this way or not, but if you're constantly living your life in a way that you're sharing everything and you're yeah. giving this experience and this information and this communication away to everybody all the time, does it devalue it either how you experience it or when you do share it, then when you maybe don't, share it so wide and so often on social media and therefore it's a more valuable experience to you when you experience it but then also a more valuable experience to those that you do choose to share it with in person i think that's true and i think you can also end up in this rabbit hole of of just sharing garbage like you you just start diluting the things you share on facebook because you just want you're just in the habit of just sharing something mm-hmm. and so i think you just find crap to share and put out there in the, in the universe well because inevitably there's Minutia. somebody out there that will like it yeah or comment on it <laughs> exactly. which reinforces you and you're like oh great yeah. and it, it's nothing related to the the quality of what you share exactly okay i've been silent during this part of the discussion because i'm about as deep as like a saucer <laughs> a paper plate and so you know a puddle that's how deep i am um, and and you know putting crap out there you just described everything i do on facebook yeah, um, but, yeah. You know, i don't I, think I, that's positive. true I, I like being able to just get on when i'm not doing other stuff mm-hmm. and see what my family in sweden are doing or friends in pakistan last night i was talking to someone i work with in india through facebook uh-huh. you know my friends in 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 africa all over the place you know and 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 these are actual friends these are people i've actually met you know it's yeah. not just like Facebook friend who you don't know who the person really is or anything. Cause right. I don't know if you heard this. Some people on Facebook are not who they say they are. <gasps> but, yeah, true, true. But you know, the fact is it's pretty cool because it's free sort of yes. there. We are giving all of our information away, all of our photos and everything, all of our locations. Mm-hmm. And in the sense of giving them everything, it's free. Yeah, and I get to see what's going on with my family and in, in other parts of the U.S., other parts of the world. So in that part, it's nice. But we give so much stuff away anyway. Yeah, you know, I actually sent away last week. It came yesterday for a DNA testing kit. Um, <laughs> a cousin, I always thought that that I was German and Swedish. Um, a cousin of mine said, "Dude, I did it, and I have no German in." So I'm thinking, what? So, you know, I sent that away. Well, you know that that's ending up in a database somewhere. Yeah. Every time you go into Target, you have cameras all over the store. You know, you're being watched everywhere. But also your purchases are being tracked as well. Yeah. You know, there was concerns. I remember in the 90s when the, the loyalty cards at the supermarket started coming up. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, one world government is going to watch what I'm buying at Safeway. You know, the Illuminati is going to know, you know, what kind of tampons my wife is buying or whatever. So, yeah. you know, I, I, you know, it's, it's privacy, I think, is, is to some extent an illusion nowadays it's, anyway. Well, but it's we for sale. It's there. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely for sale. Only and, we, we're not the ones who get to profit from that sale. No. And I think there's, there's a little bit of pushback about that right now is, is actually people being able to profit from their own, their own yeah. uh, privacy. But that's the other thing. That's the next topic is, is there's a lot of talk about how people are the commodity and, you know, for, for years and years and years, advertisers have paid top, top dollar to advertise on the Super Bowl, right? So what you're paying for is eyeballs on the screen. How many eyeballs are on this screen? Well, each eyeball is worth, you know, 10 cents. So we've got 30 billion eyeballs on the screen. This is what you're going to pay. Or, you know, each eyeball is worth whatever. And, and it goes back to the Brady Bunch to leave it to Beaver. You know, advertisers paid top dollar to be on those primetime shows, or even have product placement within those shows. You know, I mean, how much does, you know, Rydell or whoever makes the helmets for the Super Bowl pay to be the official Super Bowl helmet provider? Uh, or how much do they give up? And it's, you know, our eyeballs and our butts and our and chairs have always been the commodity. So there's there's a lot of discussion about you know, what's for sale these days. And now it's our information. Now it's our, our address, our purchase history, our political beliefs. Because they feel like once they're armed with that information, they can influence our behavior to help them profit. Mm -hmm. But once we know that, it's repugnant. It's aversive. Right. And we do what we can to, you know, what happens when we're being coerced, when control becomes apparent, is we behave in a way that exerts counter control. Mm -hmm. So we may choose not to go there or, or we're going to complain about Facebook for a day yeah. or eight, eight minutes until we get back on to see what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. With control always comes counter control. <laughs> and, you know, consumerism, the next topic, consumerism is at an all time high. How does behavior modification affect that? And you kind of mentioned earlier, Ted, the uh, the Amazon thing. You you buy something on Amazon, and you know Amazon's like, well, you might also like if you like shampoo, you might also like soap, or if you like shoes, you might also like socks, or frequently bought together items. You know, you you want a you want a shoe. Here's a pair of socks that comes with it. You know, only ten dollars more. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and Amazon. Um makes it so easy, right? It's a, it's a response effort thing. That's, mm -hmm. I think the one thing that really gets me sometimes about, uh, this whole <laughs> idea of behavior mod is that there's the Amazons of the world yeah. that are using the science of human behavior yeah. better than maybe our own field is yeah. in that, Hey, if I can make it cheaper, so it costs less to people. That's really valuable to them, right? Money is kind of a, a reinforcer. It's our tokens that we can exchange. And if I ask them to give up less of their tokens and they don't have to do anything to get what yeah. I want to give them, well, of course, we're going we're gonna to give all of our, our few tokens to Amazon because magically things will appear right at our door in two days. So they have the whole reinforcement thing down really well, right? Mm -hmm. Reinforcement's more effective when it's um, closer in mm -hmm. time uh, to the target behavior. And so <laughs> Amazon's like, great, I will help you with that. And I will give it to you in two days. You don't have to wait seven days, 10 days for these other people. You get it for two in two days for me. And all you have to do is just click a button. Sometimes you don't even have to check out on Amazon. You just hit buy now and it appears on your doorstep in two days for less than it would 
other websites where you maybe have to go to your cart and you have to go through the whole checkout process and then you have to wait seven to 10 days. We're upset now when we order something online and we have to actually wait more than two days for it. Mm. So, you know, Amazon, I don't mean to pick on Amazon, but Amazon is kind of harnessing and mastering this whole behavior mod thing, this uh, science of human behavior better than a lot of behaviorists and behavior scientists or practitioners out there in the world. Well, I wonder, I wonder how many behavior analysts are working for Amazon, but you know, the other thing is it's, it's probably all run electronically, right? Or a big chunk of it. Yeah. Computers and what computers have over people who practice behavior analysis is the computer can do it the same way every time. Mm-hmm. The computer can be 100% consistent and the computer can be immediate. And people's behavior when we're mediating reinforcement, when we're delivering those reinforcers, we're a lot more variable. Mm-hmm. But there's also, man, there's a whole big response effort required for me to go to Target and buy dog food. I get every month on the 28th, I get a huge shipment for my three dogs and four cats of dog food, cat food, cat litter, a whole lot of pet stuff, mm-hmm. like $402 worth of stuff. And it's all on my doorstep when I get home from work. I don't have to go anywhere. I just have to bring it in the house. That's um, insane. And it's always there, and I can count on it. Mm-hmm. And it's a really – I one time more than a year ago, I set that up on Amazon, and it happens every month now. So when you were a college student, before cell phones even existed, before the proliferance of uh, – a proliferation of computers and self-computing. Did you ever think that that was going to happen? Well, that was kind of like Jetsons, right? And we would we would be having a breakfast pill and have flying cars. Yeah. <laughs> no, you know, there was no internet when I was in college. You know, there were, there were modems and okay. and there were there were electronic bulletin boards when I was in grad school, but Al yeah. Gore hadn't invented the internet yet. So no, no one thought that. And cell phones, <laughs> forget about it. There were walkie-talkies and rich people had car phones. Yeah. With, you know, radios, but no, no one had that. No. Yeah, I remember my pager in high school and I thought that was high tech. Pager, yeah. I had a pager when I was on the faculty at Hopkins School of Medicine. I felt so important when I was walking <laughs> You know, the fact is the really important people don't have pagers because they have people to handle that. Yeah. (laughs) I was a pager slave, but I felt so important because I had a pager. Yes. So this, all this idea, all all this, all these ideas of behavior modification and behavior analysis and response effort and positive and negative reinforcement, it all kind of begs the question and it's the questions out there. It's been out there for a while. People have asked it, you know, there's, there's websites devoted to this is, is choice an illusion. Do we have choice? Ted, go ahead and take that. Oh, um, we have choice, but our choices are controlled. And there's a whole lot of stuff that enters into that, mm-hmm. you know, like, like the relative value of the various options and whether they're, whether, you know, they're immediate or delayed and, you know, what other things are going on with us at the time that may influence the value of one or the other, because, at one time, option A may be more valuable than option B, but under other circumstances, B is more valuable than A. And why yeah. does it ever occur to us when we have A and B that, you know, maybe there's a C? Yeah. Although sometimes, think about elections. Well, maybe yeah. not, because we'll start yelling at each other. But, <laughs> you know, I'll bet there's been more than one election when, when a lot of people have wished that we, we had, a, had a, 
none above, let's do it over choice. Yeah. You know, but when you're stuck with two, you know, that's the way it goes. No, it, it's our choices are controlled too. And that doesn't mean they're not there. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't be responsible for the consequences of the choices we make because that's how we learn and that's called life. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we got to understand that sometimes when people make really bad choices, they're really crappy circumstances that got those choices to happen. Mm-hmm. And the way to fix it is not just to mop up after that bad choice, but you got to fix those circumstances. Too. Yeah. And I think that's, that's kind of more being the case. I, I think a lot of people have a problem with this idea of, of the illusion of choice and, and what that means and actually how deep that goes. And I, we might do a whole podcast about that because it's, it's an actual theory that exists out there. Audrey, what do you think? Yeah. <laughs> Way to go. Yeah. Um, no, we, we have choice, of course, all day long. We're making choices for ourselves. Do I want to walk this way to the bathroom at work where I might walk past that coworker that grabs me and wants to talk to me for 30 minutes and I'm really busy and I have a lot of stuff I need to get done? Or do I walk the other way to the bathroom? We have choices all the time, but the circumstances or um, what's present in the environment at that time is going to influence what choice we make. Mm -hmm. Now, they institutions in our lives or our society as a whole can possibly limit what choices are available to us. And so to that regard, uh, we only have so many choices that that are out there, but. And and those aren't bad. You know, think about what what you're talking about is the supermarket, you know, the, the Ford dealer, you know, there's uh, how many, think about cars, colors for cars. Remember when there used to be a lot of them? Yeah. It was like four. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so the it, it doesn't mean evil, bad, scary institutions. It just means like the 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 places that 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 give us choices to make. I guess. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And and there's there's things that direct your choices probably a little bit more uh, obviously, a little bit less uh, you know hidden than that. But and I may not like the options available to choose from, but that yeah. choice is always still there. And my history of contacting reinforcement or contacting punishment, whether good things happened or bad things happened after I made certain choices in certain situations in the past is going to influence what choice I make again. Mm-hmm. I'm going to want to contact things that are a little more rewarding and reinforcing than things that were more punishing in the past. And it feels a little bit coercive and it feels like we have less freedom and choice when sometimes we have to make a choice between some, which is less awful Instead of, oh, which of these things would I like the most? It's which of these things are less awful. And that feels a little uh, like less freedom, but the choice is still there. The choice is still there. And Ted, I kind of wanted to go over this last. You mentioned uh, behavior modification on an individual level. And I think there's been occasions where it's kind of gotten a bad rap. There's a lot of blog posts from... uh, people that are on the spectrum or, or people in the Asperger's community that say, you know, I don't, I don't want to be, I don't want my behavior modified. I don't want to be a robot. I don't want to be, you know, modified into a homogenous human being. And I, I don't think that's the intention, is it? Well, some may have that intention. I don't. None of the <laughs> I know do. 
you know, that's that's not if you if you read everything put out by the Behavior Analyst Certification Board and the Association for Behavior Analysis, that's not what 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 they tell us we should be doing. Yeah. But mm-hmm. I can't deny that some have had that experience. And they're absolutely right to not want that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, they're absolutely right. We're all individuals, and that's what makes you know, it's the outliers who make life interesting. And, you know, I'm not into, I, I don't want to make everyone be kind of bland vanilla people. I want everyone to be as interesting as they are. But it's great to be able to learn how to use the bathroom by yourself, yeah. take the bus by yourself, drive by yourself, get to where you're going, pay your bills, do all of that stuff for yourself. You know, the more independent you could become and, and the better relationships and the, 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 the wider variety or the deeper relationships, having the kind of relationships you want. Yeah. You know, some people want a lot of them, some want a few of them. Having the kind of relationships you want, all that's important. That's all I want to help people do. Yeah. Audrey? Samesies. Samesies. <laughs> Deep catch, Madre Kennedy. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it, the whole goal of um, behavior modification, um, whether you call it behavior modification or behavior analysis or... It, is is generally and historically always been to make things better, mm-hmm. make society better, help somebody lead a happier, independent, successful life. Mm-hmm. There are probably people out there that practice it to make things better for um, their own interests, mm-hmm. or you know, if 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 we want to delve into Cambridge Analytica and people that you know, pay them for campaigning and stuff. Sure. In their eyes though, they're still making things better for someone might not work out so well for the person that didn't pay Cambridge Analytica Mm -hmm. to um, help them out with their campaign. But historically it's not, it didn't, it wasn't engendered from a place of malice to control people to um, for this this coercion kind of thing. It was always to help society grow and be better and help individuals grow and be better and more successful and happier. And so it, it's not this evil, scary, um, they just want to control and manipulate us <laughs> kind of thing. So behavior analysis and behavior modification exist, people. If you've experienced anything about those ideas, let us know. Let us know. Email me at srslypodcast, all one word, at gmail.com, or hit us up on Facebook at srsly, comma, space, really, question mark. You're going to get a lot of people uh, responding to you because everybody has experienced your <laughs> modification at some point in their life. Yeah, I don't, I don't mind. I want people to, to interact with us. If you have habits that you want to get rid of, if you have... Uh, you know, if you need help in a certain area, changing something about your life, talk to a behavior analyst. They're pretty good at that. (laughs) And until next time, you can hit us up on Facebook. I already gave you the Facebook. You can hit us up on Instagram at the same handle at SRSLY comma space, really. Uh, If you have any questions, comments, show ideas, go ahead and email us at the aforementioned email. And that is all. Ted, Audrey. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Audrey. Yeah, thanks for listening, guys. Have a good day, guys. Thanks. Bye, everyone.